1: Today, on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick.
0: Real
2: love is calling it, Opens up your eyes. inspiration is not just simply about the content. Inspiration also speaks to its compilation. Do we believe that God moved in the hearts of these particular church leaders at the time to pass these things through a test that God orchestrated design so that eventually what we have here is the sum total of the revelation of God? And you're going to have to just simply settle that by faith. That we believe here at Cornerstone that this is the sum total revelation of God, all 66 books of the Bible, inspired, inerrant, infallible.
1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Psalms. As Christians, we need to believe that the Bible is inspired by God. Pastor Gary teaches us today that it is not acceptable for us to pick and choose that which we like from the Bible. We cannot look to it as merely a book of moral guidelines or interesting stories. Instead, we must hold it as God's Word. We must see it in its entirety as God's absolute truth. Once we accept the Bible as His finite truth... We can then attempt to follow its teachings with the goal of upholding all its values. Live with Jesus and His Word as the center of your life. Make no compromises. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in Psalms chapter 119 for part two of today's message titled, The Blessings and Benefits of the Bible.
2: I want us to be different. We're going to be swimming upstream in our culture related to how we value the Bible around here at Cornerstone. But nevertheless, this is my commitment to you, and this is important that we all understand just exactly what does this church think about the Bible. There are three terms I would encourage you to write down. Again, I apologize if this sounds a little bit more like a college class than it does a Sunday sermon, but I just want to lay the foundation with us. We've got to get this clear first. We're not going to appreciate the blessings and benefits of the Bible. Three terms, inspired, inerrant, and infallible. Now, the first term is inspired. When we talk about the Bible as being inspired, we don't mean it like we would say that Shakespeare was inspired to write a good play or Michael Buble was inspired to write a good song. Okay? Inspiration, when we talk about it in terms of the Bible, is much more than that. What we mean is that God is the source of the Bible and that he worked through human authors to bring forth specific words of what they originally were wrote. So here's a working definition for those of you taking notes. Inspired means God's revelation expressed through men who were vessels of his thoughts and intentions. Okay, that's what it means. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, it tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, in a King James or New King James Bible, it says that All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so there's that word inspiration. But the NIV actually translates the original Greek language more literally. The Greek word is theonoustos. And theonoustos means God breathed. This came directly from God, breathed into the hearts of human vessels to be able to write how they were inspired to communicate the themes, messages, and words that God wanted to communicate. This is why Peter would say in 2 Peter 1.21, For prophecy never had its origin, its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you, hear, do you hear that symbolism there? Carried along by the Holy Spirit. So inspiration means that God so directed the human writers of Scripture that using their personalities their cultural experiences, their literary styles, his complete revelation for mankind was recorded. Okay, Now, the sum total of the Bible inspired. It doesn't necessarily mean that somebody, you know, don't think of it in terms of a trance and then somebody's like, you know, God says this word and then this word and then this word. And they were like mechanically moved in, in some kind of a dictated way. People were inspired by God so that the words that were selected and the thoughts and the ideas are the words, thoughts, and ideas of God. But it's not this mechanical motion. They were using their own cultural background, their own literary styles, their own personalities to communicate exactly, precisely what God wanted communicated, and that it was communicated inerrantly. In other words, that's our second word, that it was recorded without error or contradiction when it was originally written thousands of years ago. That, In other words, man did not interject his own ideas or superimpose his own views. So here's the definition of of inerrant. It, it, It means totally true, without contradiction or error, in the original manuscripts. Now, we say original manuscripts because, look, over the centuries, there's been translations into different languages, and in the course of, you know, translating into different languages, there can be sometimes some, you know, words that are translated a little differently, and so that's why it's good to sometimes compare with the original language and try to dig out Scripture to make sure, you know, how's this version that has been translated, for example, into English, how how is it relative to the text itself? And so that's why, that's why I will constantly you know, joke about the Message Bible, because it's not, it's not a translation. It is a paraphrase, and in my opinion, it's a terrible paraphrase, in the way that it speaks about things that don't give you the true meaning of the original language and intent. But otherwise, we say original manuscripts, the original writing. Now, now, let me tell you a little bit about the Bible. And again, this is the kind of thing that people will ask me from time to time, but not necessarily something that if you invited a friend, they were wanting to know by the end of the day. But here's how it works, okay? Sixty-six books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Human authors inspired by God, who's really the author, 40 of them, around 40 different writers of the Bible. When you take all of the prophets and all of the apostles and those who were neither, who ended up being a part of the compilation of the Bible, about 40 different authors, Sixty-six books, 40 different writers, three languages. The original languages of the Bible were Hebrew, Old Testament, Greek, New Testament. There's a little bit of Aramaic in both. Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Over 1,600 years total. From cover to cover, about 1,600 years. And here's the beauty of it. you got 40 different writers three languages, three continents, 1600 years. And yet the beauty of it is it is thoroughly consistent without contradiction and with one central theme that God loves mankind and his redemptive plan for us expressed in the Bible, redeeming us from sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of this harmonious, consistent, not contradicting. Let me You just have to grasp that for a moment. you got 40 different people writing the same thing, three languages, three continents, over 1,600 years. How's that possible that all of that can come together with such harmony and consistency and without contradiction? Think about it. You couldn't get three reporters in a single room writing in the same language about the same story on the same continent, and they'd get it right. At least not three reporters from CNN. We know that now, right? (laughs) fake news. But anyhow... But think about the magnitude of the miracle of this, that how God was behind this, orchestrating all of this. Because you, you, you can't get people like that to agree with a central theme without contradiction, and yet that is the Bible. Jesus even spoke about the minutest, minutest accuracy of the, of the Scriptures when he said in Matthew 5.18, he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything has been accomplished." Now, what Jesus is saying there is he's referring to the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is the letter Yod. And he talks about the smallest letter and the least stroke of a pen. There are little marks in the Hebrew language over certain letters and inside certain letters that if they are there or are not there, it changes the entire meaning of a word. And Jesus is saying, I want you to know that not the smallest letter of the alphabet and not the least stroke of a pen will by any means pass away until all these things have been accomplished. So he is giving credibility to the minutest detail of the Bible. That's why it is inerrant. Now, here's where we get this question. Well, don't they have mistakes in the Bible? Aren't there errors? How can you say it's inerrant? Because after all, okay, I'll give it to you, Pastor G, that you know of holy and perfect God, but he was using imperfect human vessels, and there's room for error in there. Well, basically, that would be true in in the sense of human error, human vessels, but God has preserved the inerrancy of the Scripture despite human vessels. How so? First of all, when I hear people say this, and I will get this from time to time, and it's usually either from people who are brand new Christians or they're not Christians at all, they will say to me, um... Doesn't the Bible have a lot of mistakes in it? Doesn't it have a lot of errors in it? A lot of contradictions? Yeah, how many of you have heard somebody say that to you? You've gotten that question before. Doesn't the Bible have a lot of mistakes, a lot of errors? A lot of... This is the first thing. Say this to them. This is the first thing I say to somebody. Really? Could you show me? 99% of the time somebody goes, I, I, I don't really know where they are. I've just heard this. So now I'm trying to defend something that they heard that isn't even true. So I'm already at a disadvantage. So I say to people, you need to show me, because they don't have anything to show. This is the kind of stuff that people will say about the Bible who don't know the Bible. Now, let me just give you a little information about how wonderful the Hebrew language is to show you and help you understand why it is that it has been preserved all these centuries without error. And again, this is going to sound a little technical. There was a group of Jews called the Masoretes. I'm just sharing this as one example. The Masoretes wrote a, on a scroll, on parchment, the entire book of Isaiah, the entire book. And it was for a long time the oldest manuscript of the book of Isaiah that we had, dating back to about 900 A.D. In 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in a cave in Qumran in Israel beautifully and wonderfully preserved because of the climate of the Dead Seas and because God probably had something to do with that too. And so in 1947, among the Dead Sea Scrolls was a perfect and perfectly intact parchment of the entire book of Isaiah. But the Dead Sea Scrolls were a thousand years older than what the Masoretes had written. So, what scholars did was they looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls of Isaiah, which was a thousand years before the Isaiah scroll that the Masoretes wrote, and they compared the two, and they were absolutely word for word, line for line, mark by mark, identical. But they were separated by a thousand years. Now, one reason for this accuracy is you can thank the scribes the Hebrew language is one of a few ancient languages that have a numerical value attached to each letter. So the ancient scribes, when they were transferring and copying texts, when they would finish writing a line, they would add up the numerical value of all the letters on this scroll, and they would compare it to all the numerical values of the scroll from which they were copying. And if the math did not add up, they threw the whole scroll away and started over. So, the accuracy has been preserved in wonderful ways to say nothing, of course, of the hand of God that has been behind it. Now, what about some of these apparent contradictions? I'm going to give you one, but for the sake of time, I I can't go through all of these and, and try to explain everything. But I'll give you one example. Years ago, I saw an article in Newsweek. It was an article that was on the front cover. It was around Easter time, and it was about, quote, the contradictions in the Bible, so I'm looking, I'm looking at this and I'm going, okay, great. Here's, here's some other real, you know, whiz-bang scholar now going to try to shred the Bible. And, and so I'm reading through it. And here's an example of just the silliness without understanding context, okay? So in Newsweek, they talked about And maybe you've heard this too. There's a contradiction in the Bible. Remember when Jesus drove out the money changers? Remember when he was... You know, really all bothered and and kind of went off on you know driving all the money changers out because they had polluted the house of God. Well, John's gospel said it happened at the beginning of his ministry. His public ministry was three years. Matthew's gospel says it happened at the end of his ministry. Oh, says Newsweek and others, it's a contradiction. Is it the beginning of his ministry? Is it at the end of his ministry? Let, let me ask you a question. If I have a couple of friends, and one friend says to you, I saw Hamrick, I saw him go into McDonald's and get an ice cream cone at lunch. And I have another friend who says to you, I saw Hamrick, he went into McDonald's at dinner time and got an ice cream cone. One says he went in at lunch, one said at dinnertime. By the way, not out of the question. <laughs> and you hear each of these friends, now you, you can draw the conclusion, well, one guy said it was lunch and one guy said it was dinner. Or you can draw the conclusion that he did both. Jesus drove the money changers out twice, once at the beginning of his ministry, one at the end of his ministry. So things that even look like apparent contradictions aren't actually apparent contradictions. You take the sum total of scripture and you realize that it's communicating the larger message. So I got to run through this. The next word, infallible. Infallible means accurate, reliable, and trustworthy for all matters of faith and practice. That's what the Bible is. In other words, you can trust and rely on the truth of the Bible for your life. There's nothing about it that will ever lead you astray. Nothing about it will ever deceive you. That God's promises are true and his word will never pass away. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So how did all of this get compiled? We have, again, 66 books of the Bible. How did all of this come to be that we hold in our hands today? Again, a little classroom for you, but for those of you who would take notes on this, so you can intelligently answer. Listen, you know, look, you're going to get sometimes these questions, or you might have these questions. So I just, I want to help you understand what is the background, how did it happen, is it reliable? There's very little dispute about the Old Testament. The reason is because ancient Jews already understood that the ancient prophets were legit. They come strolling into town, and, and, the Jewish people understood. They're speaking on behalf of God, and when they would say things and they would come to pass, there was kind of little doubt. So the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi has been embraced for as long as anybody has recorded Scripture. Okay, It's the New Testament that's a little tricky. How did, the New, how did those 27 books of the New Testament get included in the Bible? And, and here's the answer. Early church fathers gathered together to answer this question. And there were two council meetings that the early church fathers had in the 4th century. One was called the Council of Hippo in, in three three um, 393 AD and the Council of Carthage at 397 AD. Both of those are towns in North Africa. Early church fathers got together, Council of Hippo, and then later Council of Carthage, and they looked at four criteria for deciding what ancient manuscripts, letters, epistles should be included in our New Testament to make the completion of what we call the canon of Scripture from cover to cover. And here were the four criteria that they looked at. Authorship, authority, accuracy, and acceptance. Okay, and I'm going to rattle through this real quickly, but this is how they came to the conclusion. They looked at these four criteria. First, authorship. Was the author a known and recognized prophet or apostle? Someone who was substantiated by the spiritual community? And if not, was he at least endorsed by an apostle or a prophet? For example, Luke was not an apostle. He was not even Jewish. He was a Gentile doctor. But he wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. However, Paul, who was an apostle, quotes Luke and legitimizes Luke in that sense. So his authorship was okay as well as everyone else who was judged among the 27 books of the New Testament. The second is authority. Does the writing come with authority in it? Have you ever noticed, for example, in your Old Testaments when you read like the prophet Isaiah, does Isaiah ever say, Listen, i got something that's kind of on my heart. I don't really know if this is going to make much sense, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. No, no, no. Isaiah, it's like, and then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Is there authority in this? Are they speaking on behalf of God? Or is this, is, is they're kind of pandering and, and maneuvering and using words that don't seem like they have much authority. And so the New Testament writers were judged in a similar way. Thirdly, accuracy. Did the writing contain accuracy of doctrine? Was it consistent with orthodox teaching? Were details and events and locations referenced in the letter accurate? So they looked at accuracy. Then they fourthly looked at acceptance. Was it widely accepted by the early church at large? Was it circulated and read? Did the early church fathers quote from them? Uh, For instance, the New Testament quotes hundreds of passages out of the Old Testament. Paul quotes Luke. Uh, Peter quotes Paul. They all quote Jesus. So... Is there wide acceptance among the early church that they understood this was legitimate? Now, you put all these together, and you could still end up saying this sounds pretty man-made. A bunch of people got together, Council of Hippo, Council of of Carthage. It sounds like something at the zoo, and and uh, and and they're deciding what books go in the Bible. But here's what we need to understand inspiration is not just simply about the content inspiration also speaks to its compilation do we believe that god moved in the hearts of these particular church leaders at the time to pass these things through a test that god orchestrated design so that eventually what we have here is the sum total of the revelation of god and you're gonna have to just simply settle that by faith that we believe, here at Cornerstone, that this is the sum total revelation of God, all 66 books of the Bible, inspired, inerrant, infallible. The rule of faith and practice. Now, real quickly, because I get this question a lot, those of you with Catholic backgrounds, you will say to me, my Bible, my Catholic Bible has some different books in it. Yeah, you have 14 extra books in your Catholic Bible called the Apocrypha that we don't have in, in, our, in our Bibles. And the reason is because the Council of Hippo and the Council of Carthage decided those particular letters, though they might be historical, were not reliable and did not pass the mustard of these four criteria. In the 1500s, the Catholic Church got together in the 1500s, 1100 years after this was settled by the Council of Hippo and Carthage, the Council of Trent Roman Catholics got together in the 1500s and they said, we want to include other letters in our Bible that up to that point had never been included. So I personally don't believe the Apocrypha is inspired, inerrant, and found. It might be historical, they might be some interesting reads, but they don't pass the test. Jesus never once quoted from the Apocrypha. He quoted all the time from the Old Testament. Any of the Apocrypha books, he never quoted from, as did none of the apostles, none of the prophets. And there's actually a boatload of inaccuracies, especially related to geography. So, for that reason, we don't have them in our Bibles, and, and, I, and I wouldn't include them along the list of the uh, inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God. Look, I know that, again, I just kind of turned on a fire hose and just like, what in the world? But I, I wanted to say all this because I want to lay the foundation. Next week, we're going to start to unpack Psalm 119. And if you don't appreciate the Bible itself, you won't appreciate the blessings and benefits inherent in it. In Psalm 119.105, it says that this book is a lamp that guides me. In Jeremiah 15.16, it says this book is food for my soul. In Jeremiah 23.29, it says this book is like a fire that refines me and like a hammer that breaks up the hard parts of my heart. In Ephesians 5.26, it, it, it says it's like water that washes over the impurities of my life in 1 Peter 2 2 it says it's like pure milk that nourishes a newborn baby. All the wonderful attributes of God's Word contained within, but we must read it, believe it, and apply it, otherwise, it has no value to our souls. So, read ahead and let's be prepared next week to start to unpack Psalm 119.
1: psalm we read is intended to point us to one thing, the sovereignty of our Creator. Through pain, tears, joy, and praise, we meet a new characteristic of God with each new chapter. Though we don't know the melodies that accompany this collection of old, we benefit from the deeply passionate and poetic words. We hope your soul has been touched by the teaching you heard today on Cornerstone Connection. Pastor Gary Hamrick will return soon with more from this Old Testament book. But in the meantime, you'll be able to find additional messages at cornerstoneconnection.cc. We'd like to encourage you to download our mobile app while you're there so you can stay connected to God's Word wherever you happen to be. Each day can be made brighter by the love and power of our Lord. And it's so convenient to have it right at your fingertips. If you live in or are visiting the Leesburg area, We'd love for you to come be a part of our weekly worship services on Sundays. Cornerstone Chapel meets at 8 30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. each week, or try our Wednesday night Bible study at 7 p.m. For directions and more information, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today, but be sure to join us next time for another in depth look at the Psalms right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're all- that you've got no
2: place to go, but still you know, but still you know. you're not a-